Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. Let's talk about seven years of God's judgment upon the earth, something the Bible calls the time of Jacob's distress. Coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles with Church Discipleship Ministries. Welcome to my discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today, we are starting part two of our Bible study on the book of Revelation. And if you remember our simple outline, part one was called The Beginning is the End. The beginning is the end. And that goes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. That one little verse in chapter 8 is part of part 1. The beginning is the end. And that refers to the how the beginning of the book is talking about the end of the church age. And that is the last days of the church that goes all the way through the seven seals that are preparing the church for the rapture. Now, part two is called the middle is the day. The middle is the day, and that goes from chapter 8, verse 2, all the way through chapter 19. So what does this mean? Well, let's talk about the, the middle of the book. It's talking about the day of the Lord. Well, what's the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is of Old Testament prophecy that all of Israel was looking forward to. And it includes what we call today the seven-year period of God's judgment and the millennial kingdom. Now, this seven-year period of judgment, which is what we're talking about mainly through the middle part of the book, Jeremiah 37 calls the time of Jacob's distress. And that's a very good way to call it. In fact, that's the biblical way you should call it. Remember, it's not the tribulation period. Get that out of your mind. We've talked about that dozens of times. Tribulation just means Christian persecution. And that is over because the rapture has come. So now Jeremiah 30 verse 7 is referring to the day of the Lord. And listen to what he says. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress but he will be saved from it. So obviously it's talking about the Jewish people and it refers to this prophetic event as the time of Jacob's distress. This seven year period of God's judgment will be a time of distress for the Jewish people. Now other translations call it the time of Jacob's trouble. So either translation you have is fine, but the New American Standard really nails it when it says the time of Jacob's distress. So this day of the Lord includes two main components. The first is the day of judgment. In other words, this judgment for seven years that comes down on the earth. And then the second component is known as a day of peace in the Old Testament. And it talks about all the wonderful things that's going to happen when the Messiah is ruling the kingdom. Now, let's read some of these verses. You can go through your concordance, and you can get dozens and dozens of them if you look up the word day in the Old Testament or the phrase day of the Lord. And you'll have to, you know, sift through a lot of verses. There's a lot of them out there. But I've picked four from each category that I think are some of my favorite verses that explain these concepts. Let's talk about the judgment component of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, verse 9 says this, For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be destroyed and all the sinners with it. So it's pretty clear. It's talking about judgment. Joel 1, 15 says this about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is on the way. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty. 
how terrible that day will be. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Amos 5, verse 18, we read this. How terrible it will be for you who say, If only the day of the Lord were here, for then the Lord would rescue us from all our enemies. But you have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will not bring light and prosperity, but darkness and disaster. Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14, says this, That terrible day of the Lord is near. Swiftly it comes, a day when strong men will cry bitterly. Wow. So part of the day of the Lord refers to this judgment from God, and it's going to be so intense that Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's distress. And Zephaniah calls it that it is a terrible day that makes strong men weep and cry bitterly like little babies. So it's going to be a very severe time of judgment. And we know it to be, and we'll see it later in the book of Revelation, a time period of seven years, and it's known as God's judgment, the seven-year period of God's judgment, or the time of Jacob's distress. But again, that's just one component about the prophetic event called the day of the Lord. Because there's another component talking about the day of the Lord, when the Messiah rules. And it talks about the tradition of the uh, the Messiah ruling for a thousand years, because they had a tradition that a thousand years equaled a day on God's calendar. And so they called it the day of the Lord because it would be the Sabbath rest of the earth when the Messiah ruled for a thousand years or one day on earth. So let's read some of those verses talking about the day of the Lord being a day of peace. Isaiah 9 verse 5, in that day of peace, battle gear will no longer be issued. Never again will uniforms be bloodstained by war. All such equipment will be burned. Later on in Isaiah 11, verses 6 and 10, we read this. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and yearlings will be safe among lions, and a little child will lead them all. In that day, the heir to God's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, for the land where he lives will be a glorious place. So we can see that one day, part of this day of the Lord prophecy in the Old Testament, not only is it talking about judgment, but it talks about when the Messiah rules, and all the nations will be in subjection to him. Isaiah 25 verse 9 continues this theme with this verse. And that day the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. Wow, that's going to be a great day, isn't it, when he's ruling? Now, Jeremiah has also some more things to say about the day of the Lord. Remember the first verse we read, he called it the time of Jacob's distress. In Jeremiah 3, verse 17, he says this, In that day, Jerusalem will be known as the throne of the Lord. All nations will come there to honor the Lord. They will no longer stubbornly follow their own evil desires. So they'll quit going their way and go the king's way, the one true king, the Messiah. So that's the day of the Lord. It has a component of judgment. And it has a component of the Messiah reigning. And what we're centering on in the middle part of the book of Revelation is the component of judgment. The day of the Lord when God pours his judgment out on the earth. And it is a seven-year period that the Old Testament referred to in the prophecy of Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's troubles. Now, it starts off in Revelation Chapter 8, verse 2. So let's read that. As you remember, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 was the last seal, the seventh, the seventh seal that broke out 30 minutes of silence in heaven, a respectful silence 
for the judgment that was fixing to occur. So let's pick up in Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great quantity of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people to be offered on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of the saints ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And the thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Then the seven angels with seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down upon the earth. And one-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned and all the grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea, and one-third of the water in the sea became blood, and one-third of all things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great flaming star fell out of the sky, burning like a torch. It fell upon one-third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star was bitterness or wormwood. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died because the water was so bitter. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. One-third of the day was dark, and one-third of the night also. Then I looked up, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. So as you can see, the judgment that God has for the earth for the world system, begins quite severe. Now, a lot of people want to read this passages about the trumpets and the bowls and, and the rest of the book of Revelation uh, in several different viewpoints, I should call it. Basically, it's just way people argue about how to interpret it. You know, throughout history, man has tried to explain away what the Bible says to come up with more plausible explanations for what they read. We've heard false theologians say that the flood was not a worldwide flood, the flood of Noah. It just covered a certain area. We've heard people say that Jesus didn't really resurrect from uh, the dead. He just fainted on the cross and came back alive in the cool cave. All kinds of false teachings like that. People have always tried to explain away what they read in the Bible. So just taking it as truth and taking it for face value. You know, Jesus really died on the cross and he really rose from the dead. That's one of the main themes of the Bible. And the arguing keeps going on with prophecy. No one wants to just accept it for face value. You have a historical viewpoint. You have the preterist viewpoint. You have the futurist viewpoint. And then you have those who just say, oh, it just talks about spiritual things. There's always that one person in a group that talks about how spiritual he is, isn't he? So all these viewpoints are constantly arguing and fighting with each other. Look, don't get overly symbolic when you read the Bible, especially in these prophetic books of Revelation. Remember from the very beginning, I said the name Revelation is key. The Greek word apocalypsis, it means to reveal what's going to happen. Jesus isn't going to try and veil it in some kind of code. It's a spiritual veil, and when those events get closer, he lifts it up so you can understand what he plainly said, and it makes sense to you. So don't get involved with over, you know, being overly symbolic and trying to find the secret to everything. Just take it for face value. 
That's what we've been doing when we looked at the history of the churches and how they apply to us today. That's what we did when we saw the seven seals and see how current events match up with that. We're going to do the same thing when we talk about the time period of Jacob's distress. We're going to look at these judgments and take them for face value, exactly the way the Bible is saying it. So let's get started. In verse uh, 2 through 6, we see that the seven trumpets are revealed. It's what I like to call the ceremony of the trumpets. Now, you remember how it's a wonderful, long ceremony about Jesus beginning to crack open the seals because all the people were rejoicing because that meant the bride of Christ, the Christians, would soon be raptured to come home. But this is a time period of judgment, and no one's happy about this. The Lord doesn't want to do this. He wants all to be saved. And as we'll see, his grace is the reason he does some of these judgments. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So this ceremony is kind of brief as to the point. There's silence for one half hour. Like I said, that's the seventh seal. That's the last part of the seals. And then the ceremony begins. You have seven trumpets that are given to seven angels. And the, an eighth angel rises up and takes an incense burner, you know, a little pot where they put incense and let it smolder and, and, and have this wonderful smell of the burning incense go across the altar. And he took this incense burner and all the prayers of the saints. So he took it and offered them to God at the gold altar. So he is using this incense altar and bringing all the prayers of the saints to the Lord God at the altar. Then the same angel takes the empty incense burner because he poured out the prayers to God. And he takes the empty burner and fills it with fire from the altar and throws it down the earth. And thunder and lightning and a terrible earthquake happens. So obviously this is something big fixing to happen. And, and a storm, thunder and lightning and an earthquake uh, was a prelude to what's fixing to happen. And then the first angel with the first trumpet blows his trumpet. And hail mixed with fire and blood came down and consumed one-third of the earth. Uh, it was on fire. Fires burned and killed one-third of the earth and, and one-third of the trees and all the grass. So what happened? Well, I think fires came, wildfires came and consumed a third of our forest and, and all the grass, just like it says. And then a second trumpet was blown and a mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. Now think about it. What is a mountain of fire? What do we call a mountain of fire today? A volcano. That's right, a volcano. So this is obviously an underground, beneath the ocean, volcano that erupts, and all the molten lava and everything is thrown in the sea, and somehow or another, it turns one-third of the sea to blood. In other words, it gets blood red. Maybe it causes that uh, red algae that is so dangerous in the waters. But whatever it happens, it kills all these animals, one-third of the sea creatures, and it happens near a shipping lane, and all these ships are destroyed. One-third of these ships are destroyed. And it, it, it just is literally just killing off the ocean. Some type of volcano is what I think it's referring to. Now, some people say, well, couldn't it be an asteroid that's thrown down? You know, a mountain of fire, an asteroid that's thrown down into the ocean? Well, yeah, it could be, but I don't think so. I think it's a volcano because the next trumpet talks about just such an event, an asteroid coming. Trumpet number three talks about an asteroid coming, and, and I read it in the NLT, and it was called bitterness, but other translations, most translations will call it by name that the John was given in the prophecy called Wormwood. And somehow this asteroid, this large asteroid comes and it's got some type of germ or bacteria or chemical within its makeup so that when it hits the earth, it infects the water, it poisons the water systems of the world. And of course, all water flows and 
small creeks turn into big rivers and big rivers dump into the ocean eventually. So all this is mixing up throughout the earth. And one third of the water is poison. And of course, many people are going to die from that, aren't they? Because, I mean, drinking water disappears, and we know how precious drinking water is. Then the fourth trumpet, darkness. One-third of the sun and moon and stars are struck and made dark. One-third of the day and one-third of the night is made dark. Now, this is interesting, because if you look at the Greek, it's pretty clear what it's saying. The Greek indicates this phrase might better be translated as that there's a third decrease, you know, a decrease by a third of the brightness of the day. And since the stars are also dimmed, the dark become, I mean, the night becomes more dark by a factor of one third. So it's talking about the light being dimmed. How? Well, the logical conclusion would be some type of particulate uh, in our atmosphere that's blocking the moon and the sun and the stars from shining down into us. So somehow or another, it's decreasing the light that we're getting by one third. Maybe it's just the dust from that volcano that happened in the second trumpet, or when the asteroid hit and the dust it threw up in the atmosphere. We've seen bad volcanoes that happened just in our lifetime that uh, kept planes from flying over there in Europe when it went off. So we know that sometimes volcanoes or things like this could throw a lot of dust up in the air, and that might be what's happening to block the sun and decrease the brightness of what that we normally experience. But however it's happened, these trumpets, just take them for face value, it's doing what Jesus is saying it's doing. And then the next thing we read in chapter 8 of Revelation is that after the first four trumpets are blown, an eagle flies by and warns the next three trumpets and calls them the next three or terrors. And the woe unto you that have to live through the terrors. Now, what's the eagle? I've heard people say, oh, that's America. I don't think so. I think it's an eagle. Okay. I think John saw an eagle, a messenger, flying by. Just like angels have wings and are messengers, he saw an eagle fly by crying this. Uh, could it be uh, writings or, or the, from the church in America, or could it be all that? Well, you can make up all kinds of theories, but I, I like just taking it for face value. John saw up in heaven a heavenly creature called an eagle that flew by and said, Woe unto the people that's coming up next. These terrors are next. The next three trumpets are the terrors. But let's take a moment and look a little bit more closely and analyze these four trumpets. I want you to notice the imagery of the blood that's involved in this. We see blood being mentioned quite a bit, especially with the first two trumpets. We see uh, the hail coming down with blood, and we see the mountain of fire thrown in the sea that turns the sea into blood. So there's this emphasis of blood going on. I think that's possibly a response to the blood on humanity's hands. Remember, these are the beginning of God's judgments. And one of the things he's going to judge us is the blood we have on our hands. You see, God's original plan was that we did not have earthly rulers, that we allowed him to be our king, him to be our ruler, and that we would all be equal. But ever since the garden, one of our mains, and we fell and rejected God's plan, Ever since then, our, one of our main sins has always been to let other people rule over us because we have these irrational fears. And so we want, we want to trust a human more than God to take care of us. And so we get what we think is the best leader. Back in the old days, it might be the strongest and best warrior. Now it's, you know, in politics, it, it, we go for those who seem to have the most political power. But we always are sinning in that aspect of wanting man to protect us instead of trusting God. And then on the other side of that coin of this sin is some people have this sinful need to rule over people. They want to be uh, the rulers. They consider themselves 
an elite. And this the sin of elitists ruling over people has gone on throughout human history. Wars have been fought throughout history because of this need for some people to rule over others and this sinful uh, acquiescence of people to allow it. So the elitists have always wanted to rule over their fellow mankind, and, and wars have been fought throughout history of it. Just in the 20th century alone, the 20th century alone, there was filled, 100 years filled with war, and it had two world wars, World War One, World War II, and then you have all the police actions that we call war as normal people, like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, things like that. So it was going on throughout the century. Tyrants throughout history have been illustrating this sin, a need to torture and bring fear into their population so that they will submit to their tyranny. We saw this with Hitler's Germany and also the purges that Stalin did in the USSR. So throughout history, we have had this tendency to either want to rule over people or to acquiesce to people's tyranny so that they will protect us because we don't trust God. And this, this sin, this double-sided sin has been plaguing humanity and has brought so much blood on our hands, so much death. So I think maybe that's one reason blood is mixed into these some of these judgments. Also, I want you to notice the imagery of darkness. Could this possibly be God's judgment because we prefer the darkness instead of the light of his truth? I mean, think about it. We live in a culture of propaganda, lies, situational ethics, and outright ignoring the teachings of God's word and God's truth. Throughout human existence, we have preferred to try and create our own reality instead of just following God's truth. And we lie to ourselves and we create what is commonly called situational ethics. Oh, it's okay to commit this sin if you're doing it for the right reason. And like we've talked about before, the end never justifies the means, but we tell ourselves it does, don't we? And we create this whole system of lies to try and get reality shaped the way we want it instead of just believing God and following the reality and the truth of his life. Also, I want us to notice how each of the first four trumpets appear to be like natural disasters. And I think this is kind of a transition from God allowing our sin to run its course in the seven seals to uh, an act of judgment where it's obvious it's coming from God later on uh, with some of the bold judgments. So this transition, uh, even though it's judgments coming from God for these trumpets, the trumpet judgments, these are appearing to be like natural disasters. And I think that's interesting because I think what's going to happen is a lot of people will reject these judgments and reject the conviction in their heart. You see, God brings judgments because he's trying out of his grace to get people to repent and turn to him for salvation. So whenever these judgments come, people will have this conviction in their hearts. And some will turn to God and get saved, and some won't. We see this uh, with every major disaster that happens. We saw this with 9-11, people flooding the churches initially. They didn't stay there, but they, initially they went there. And so I think that's what's happening. They start, you know, these judgments start coming, and God's goal is that it will convict people and they'll turn to him. But since these are natural disasters, I think a lot of people are going to harden their hearts and they'll write it off as climate change. That this is all the results of climate change. And they'll ignore the aspect that it's coming from God. Now, a lot of Christians sit here and want to say, oh, climate change, oh, I don't want to hear it. You know, oh, that's awful. Don't even talk about it. Well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The Bible talks about climatic changes as part of God's judgment. 
So instead of rejecting unbelievers when they talk about climate change, use it as a way to bring them to the Bible and what it says about climatic changes in these judgments and use it as a way of witnessing to them and trying to lead them to Christ. But I do want to say this, even though I think climate change is very uh, well illustrated in the Bible, it's going to happen in these judgments, climatic changes and events. And the world will call it climate change. That's what they've been afraid of deep down for years now, a couple of decades, because deep down, I think everyone knows we're due for judgment. But I think climate change has a lot less to do with our car emissions than our sin emissions. You get what I'm saying? It has less to do with pollution and the emissions from our car and climate change has a whole lot to do, if not all, to do with our sinful hearts and the emissions of our sin. Let me read what the Bible says about it. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 25. As a result, the entire land has become defiled. That is why I am punishing the people who live there, and the land will soon vomit them out. You must strictly obey all my laws and regulations, and you must not do any of these detestable things. This applies both to you who are Israelites by birth and to the foreigners living among you. All of these detestable activities are practiced by the people of the land where I am taking you, and the land has become defiled. Do not give the land a reason to vomit you out for defiling it, as it will vomit out the people who live there now. So you see, our sins affect the nature of this creation. I don't know how, but God makes it where our sins just can get so saturated in the earth that it causes problems. It will literally vomit people out because of their sins. Romans 8, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about it this way. Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. So Paul echoes the same theme. Somehow or another, the sins of man affect the earth. When Adam and Eve sinned, remember, it wasn't just human race that fell. All of creation fell and got corrupted by sin. And like Paul says, the all of creation has been groaning and from this corruption, like the pains of childbirth. And they're longing, it's longing for Christ to come back and reveal his true children and to make everything right when he reigns on earth. So we're going to see this destruction in a natural way. And that's what a lot of these star, these signs in heaven and other things uh, it's judgments from God, but people are going to write it off as climate change, I think, and harden their heart against God. But they shouldn't. I, I, they shouldn't. They should see it, that these are judgments of God, and that it is our sin that has corrupted the earth to where it's all falling apart like this now. But they're not. We'll read on in Revelation that the vast majority of them will harden their heart, and they'll write it off. So what is the proper attitude that we should have towards judgment? You see, a lot of people ignore it when God gets involved in their life because they don't want to repent. They harden their heart, like I've said. But a lot of other people actually have problems with a God who judges sin. I've heard people over and over again say, I just won't believe in a God that brings bad things on people and punishes sinners. Well, I want to tell you something. If you have trouble with a God that punishes sinners and judges unrighteousness, that, that, that's just plain stupid. Think about it. Do you quit believing in gravity just because sometimes as a kid you fell and skint your knees? 
or you fell out of a tree and broke your arm? No, you accept gravity for the way it is. You accept the characteristics of gravity. And one of the characteristics of gravity is if you fall from a high place, you're going to hit the ground and it's going to hurt, maybe break a bone. But we accept it, don't we? And that's what we need to do about God. God is a very gracious God, but he does judge unrighteousness. And for you to sit here and reject God because you don't like one of his characteristics is just plain foolish because he is the only one true God. Now, how much you try and lie to yourself and wrap yourself up in a cloak of darkness of something you've created in your false reality, it doesn't change the truth. The true reality is that God is real, and you need to accept him the way he is. He's righteous, and he will judge sin, but he's also full of loving kindness and grace. And you forget that punishment, judgment, is actually an act of God's grace in hopes that people will repent and turn to him for salvation and avoid an eternal hell. So along these lines, I think there's actually four attitudes that we need to foster in our lives so that we can respond when God starts judging in a proper way in hopes that we will repent and get saved. And we need to foster these attitudes now. The first attitude we need to have in our life concerning God's judgment is humility. Humility. We need to admit that we are sinners, that we are a nation of sinners, we are a world of sinners. See, we live in the woke culture, don't we? We cancel everybody for whatever indiscretion or sin they did, whether it be 30, 40, 50 years ago. We cancel them out, say they don't deserve to have any part of our society, and we have no grace. And then to try and prove that we do deserve to be here and have a part of society, we virtue signal. We try and show how holy we are or how virtuous we are by giving money to charities and letting everybody know or by uh, misquoting or misapplying Bible verses like all these politicians do lately. You know, we do this to act like we're righteous and we're above others. But what we need to do is just humble ourselves and admit that we are sinners. We're all sinners and start showing an attitude of grace and forgiveness to each other. Romans 3.23 says it this way, For all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. You see, the Bible's clear. We all are sinners. We all need a Savior. We all need to humble ourselves, admit our sins, and turn to God for our forgiveness. If we would do that, His judgment would relent, and we would find salvation. But because we're prideful, we refuse to admit that we're sinners. And therefore, we don't seek his forgiveness and his grace. And we keep trying to signal our virtues and how righteous we are. Humility. We need humility when facing judgment. The second attitude we need is honesty. We need to admit that God is just for punishing what is deserved to be punished. God is just, and punishment is deserved for unrighteousness. We need to admit that. Now, let's go back over some of these trumpets and think about world history. Let's talk about the world history of wars and bloodshed, like we already talked about that. And this is under the aspect of the blood that was seen in a lot of these judgments. We talked about the world wars and the tyrants. But also, we need to consider this. The millions of abortions done in the past 48 years. Over 61 million babies have been killed in America alone. Now let's add that to the legal abortions done in 64 other nations. You see, it's other nations that are doing abortions too. And if you add all their abortions, we're talking about hundreds of millions of babies murdered for the convenience of their parents or their government saying you have to do this. So, you know, 
as birth control or some tyrannical government saying you can only have one kid. It has cost hundreds of millions of babies' lives. You know what's interesting about this? Legalized abortion started in totalitarian countries like in North Korea in 1950 and in the Soviet Union in 1955. So this was not considered a good thing by any freedom-loving country. Only tyrannical, totalitarian governments did this initially. But in 1973, America followed those shining examples of morality and legalized it also and opened up the doors for other enlightened countries to follow suit. We led the way for other countries to say, well, we'll do it too, because America loves freedom, so I guess it's okay. I want to tell you something. Hundreds of millions of babies have died. The blood is on our hands. And to be honest, we have to say, yes, we deserve punishment for this. But let's talk also about the world history of developing a culture of situational ethics and lies that we base our morality on. This was the darkness aspect of the judgment we talked about. But let's talk about the dramatic shift also and the rampant lies in just the last couple of decades involving homosexuality and transgender sexuality. It used to be understood, generally understood by most people to be sins. And, and that's clearly taught in God's word, y'all, that it is clear in God's word that these are sins. But now we have just in a very short time legalized these events for marriage, legalized homosexuality and this transgender uh, sexuality. We've legalized these sins for the purposes of marriage. And we are now even teaching that and influencing our young kids to choose their sexuality. I'm talking about kids as young as four, five, six years old, kindergarten and grade school age kids, are now being taught by their parents and by school systems that these immoral lies are okay. This immoral lifestyle of choosing a immoral relationship with a person of the same sex or changing your gender from what God created you to be is all okay. And these are nothing but lies that we are infecting our kids. We are brainwashing whole generations of this immoral lies. Now, that in itself says, I think we deserve punishment. Oh, yes, we deserve punishment, especially for brainwashing the younger generations with this. Hey, it's not just me saying we deserve to be judged for this immoral lies that we are teaching our young children. No, Jesus said it too. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, we read, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What's a millstone? None of us know what that is nowadays with modern uh, processes to manufacture, you know, our wheat into flour. No, a millstone was a big, huge stone, round stone cut to roll over another stone that would grind and crush the wheat and turn it into the powder that we call flour. These things weighed hundreds of pounds. And what Jesus is saying if you are one of these people who are, are telling children the wrong things and keeping these children away from finding the truth of salvation in Jesus, and if you are messing up these kids' lives in any fashion, he says, look, it's better that you go ahead and just take one of these huge several hundred pound millstones, chain it around your neck, throw yourself in the deepest ocean. It's better for you to do that then let me get my hands on you. That's what Jesus is saying. So yeah, we're going to deserve judgment big time for the way we've uh, aborted our babies and now teaching them totally horrible falsehoods 
and moral falsehoods about their sexuality that's going to mess up their lives for years, decades, maybe their whole life, and keep them from turning to God for salvation. Yeah, the wrath of God is just for judging us in this. A third attitude I think we need when we're talking about God's judgments is one of repentance. And repentance just simply means quit going your own way and follow God's way. Now, a few minutes ago, I read about Romans 3.23 that said that we are all sinners when we're talking about being uh, humble and honest. Well, let's read the rest of that paragraph. Romans 3, verse 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus, who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. God was being entirely fair and just when he did not punish those who sinned in former times, and he is entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. You see, there is a way for salvation and to avoid judgment, and it's called repentance. You know, if you are humble and admit you're a sinner and you're honest and admit that you deserve judgment, then you hopefully will turn to God and repent. Return to him and repent and say, I don't want to go my way anymore. I want to go your way. I will believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you died for my sins and rose again on the third day to forgive my sins, and I will follow you as my king. You see, well, I said in the beginning, one of our sins has always been to let men rule over us, and we're supposed to let God rule over us. So when you repent, you're going back to the way God in, in, you know, initiated it and wanted it from the very beginning, that we will allow him to be our king and to follow him as Lord, boss of our life. If you do that, that's how you get saved. You put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And through your faith, you are saved. Just like he says, he is entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. So repentance is how you can avoid the judgments. The fourth attitude we need is not just uh, humility and honesty and repentance. But we also need to have an attitude of realism, an attitude of realism, especially Christians. You see, we need to be realistic and accept the possibility that judgment is beginning, that everything we've talked about is beginning. Now, I don't have a word from God. I've told you that before over and over again during the study. But a lot has happened just in the last two weeks since I did the video talking about current events when they stormed the Capitol. And things are moving fast towards the rise of a world government. And that, of course, would be the breaking of the first seal. So I think things are possibly, and this is just my gut feeling from looking at what's going on in the world and reading scripture, I think things are close to beginning to happen. And if that's true, and the seals are close to cracking open, then judgment is right around the corner also. Because after the rapture and seal six, and then the silence of seal seven, boom, judgment comes with the seven trumpets. So I think there's a lot of things happening. You know, and I'm not just talking about the globalist agenda. I mean, let's face it, for five and a half years, we've been seeing that. They all went after Trump, who was not a globalist, ever since he announced he was going to run for president. And then, of course, you had the fraudulent election and then the storming of the Capitol when they affirmed this election fraud. And then the censorship and the purges that started taking place immediately. 
but it's gotten worse just in the last two weeks. There has been countless people talking about deprogramming or re-educating people who disagree with their political agendas. Uh, now, it's not just talking about news pundits either, but I'm talking about representatives of our government, people who used to be in the military or the intelligence arenas of our government, representatives, senators, many, many people who are part of our government are calling out for deprogramming of anybody who supported Trump. And a lot of them are going one step further and saying re-education camps for their children and re-education counts for people who have this tendency for a conservative religious viewpoint that violates the morals that they are pushing forth in their new globalist agenda. You see, they're pushing this world religion and they're talking more and more about stopping Christians who believe in only one way to going to heaven, and that's through Jesus. And this is happening now, and it's getting worse and worse. But not only that, what really bugs me the most and concerns me the most is there is constant more and more people referring to the Capitol as sacred ground. When they stormed the Capitol, you heard a few people say it. They stormed the sacred ground. But now more and more people are saying this ground is sacred. The capital is sacred. They went against this sacred ground. We need to protect this sacred ground. On and on and on, they've been talking about sacred ground up there where our capital is. I want to tell you something. By definition, and you look it up in the dictionary, the word sacred only refers to God and religion some type of place of worship of God. And that's Secular Dictionary saying this. Webster's, things like that. Look it up. Sacred only refers to God and religion. And they keep calling this place of government sacred. That's the beginning of this one world religion. And it's beginning just to slowly infect people's minds by these talking points. And they'll be pushing it more and more and more. I'm telling you, we need to be realistic and we need to realize this global government's coming. You see, the global government can't happen completely until America is drastically weakened. And we've talked about that. We have too much wealth, too much freedom, so they have to decrease both in America to make it a little bit more even when they have the time of the Ten Kings. And I think that's going on now. In fact, to be honest with you, I think America's dead. I don't think we'll ever have another fair election. I don't think we'll ever have true freedom again. They're going after the freedoms. They're going to kill it all off. People who are sold out to the one world government and the one world religion, people who have wrapped themselves in the darkness of their immoral lives and are trying to rewrite the reality of what God has said in the scripture. These people are doing everything it takes to destroy America. Now, whether it's the beginning of the seals or just God's judgment, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I don't know. But either way, I think America has died. America is dead. What we knew as a government that was dedicated to the Constitution and to freedom is no longer alive. Now, I, for one... I'm continuing to pray for our leaders in the hopes that they will realize their great sins, repent, and receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I'm still praying for that. I do for every uh, president and administration we have. But I'm also now praying for judgment if our nation refuses to repent. Because I think what's going on is very serious, especially when you start seeing what we're doing to brainwash our kids and these immoral philosophies. So either way, I think Christians need to be realistic and prepare for persecution. Let's review what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
starting in verse 17. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin first among God's own children. And if even we Christians must be judged, what terrible fate awaits those who have never believed God's good news? And if the righteous are barely saved, what chance will the godless and sinners have? So if you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what is right and trust yourself to the God who made you, for he will never fail you. He will never fail you. That's really the main thing to keep in mind, isn't it? You see, he's never going to fail believers. We will be raptured before the time of Jacob's distress begins, before the first trumpet is blown in judgment. We will be raptured, and he's not going to ever forsake us. But he's never going to fail the lost, the unbelievers, too. He never will. During the trumpets, during this seven-year period of God's judgments, remember, he marked out 144,000 Jewish witnesses, and they will be spreading the gospel, and people can still be saved. When these trumpets are blown and these judgments are beginning, some people will, yes, harden their heart and say, this is just climate change, but others will have a soft heart, will see that this is God's judgment. They will humble themselves. They will be honest with themselves, and they will repent and find salvation. You know, in the prophet of Jeremiah, in his book, in Jeremiah chapter 7, chapter 18, and chapter 26, he speaks of God giving second chances because he's so gracious. In Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 13, he writes it this way, But if you stop your sinning and begin to obey the Lord your God, he will cancel this disaster he has announced against you. You see, even right up until the time they were judged, he was saying, look, just repent. If you stop sinning and come to me now, I will cancel it. And I think if we will truly be honest with ourselves during this time of judgment, if, if you're an unbeliever and you're caught up during the time of Jacob's distress, you saw the rapture and, and people like me and others left, and you are left behind, if you will be honest with yourself and humble yourself and repent, you can be saved. You'll still have to go through some very dark days, but he'll be there with you and he won't fail you during them. You see, during this seven-year period of God's judgment on earth, some people will choose God's salvation, but most will choose judgment in hell. They'll harden their hearts. I'm telling you, if you're an unbeliever, don't be like the other people. Choose to believe and get saved, even in the days of judgment. And I would encourage you to do it now so you can avoid that nightmare of judgment totally and be caught up in the air with the other Christians when Jesus opens up those six seals and comes and gets his bride in the sky. And then you can avoid these trumpet judgments totally. That's what I hope for you. But if you're a believer, you need to trust God just like Peter said. He said he will never fail you. He said if you are suffering according to God's will, in other words, when the persecution comes and you're a Christian, keep on doing what's right. Keep believing. If you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what is right. Trust yourself to the God who made you, for he will never fail you. If you're a Christian, do just like Peter said. Keep trusting him. He will never fail you. And always remember that. And in the meantime, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. 
Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.